I want to <clears throat> uh, just let you know, I've had a persistent cough for four or five days, so I've got some good strong cough drops and water, but I may have to hack a little bit. I'll do my best not to. I'm humbled and excited to have the opportunity to share the word of God with you guys this morning. We're going to be studying the first psalm. Um, I'm going to read it, and then we will pray. I'm going to be reading from the Legacy Standard Bible. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of Yahweh, and in his law he meditates day and night. And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not rise in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous." For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning expectant. Um, We're looking forward to the things you want to show us in your word. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will be with us this morning, um, that you'll, you'll help us to be attentive, and the things that come from this pulpit, God, will be a blessing for your people. Uh, Lord, thank you so much for this opportunity. Um, Do your work in this time. Uh, Bless your people. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Psalm 1 has been a favorite passage of mine for many years. It's simple and clear. It's very straightforward and easy to understand. It's also a great introduction to the book of Psalms as a whole. The early church father, Basil, said of Psalm 1, What the foundation is to a house, the keel to a ship, the heart to an animal, the same is this psalm to the whole book. It is a preface to the Psalter. Theologian Matthew Henry says, This is a psalm of instruction concerning good and evil, setting before us life and death, the blessing and the curse, that we may take the right way which leads to happiness and avoid that which will certainly end in our misery and ruin. The different character and condition of godly people and wicked people, those that serve God and those that serve him not, is here plainly stated in a few words. So that every man, if he, if he will be faithful to himself, <clears throat> and he doesn't mean like faithful to himself in a self-actualizing way. He means faithful to himself in a self-knowledge way. Like I, I, I see which one of these men I am. If he will be faithful to himself, may here see his own face and then read his own doom. That division of the children of men into saints and sinners, righteous and unrighteous, the children of God and the children of the wicked one, As it is ancient, ever since the struggle between sin and grace, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, so it is lasting and will survive all other divisions and subdivisions of men into high and low, 
rich and poor, bond and free. For by this, men's everlasting state will be determined, and the distinction will last as long as heaven and hell. Puritan Thomas Watson writes of this psalm, This whole psalm offers itself to be drawn into these two opposite propositions. A godly man is blessed, a wicked man is miserable. Which seem to stand as two challenges made by the prophet. One, that he will maintain a godly man against all comers. The other, that albeit the ungodly make a show in the world of being happy, yet they of all men are most miserable. This is an important psalm. This isn't necessarily what I want to focus on today, but I almost can't help it. Well, I guess the reality is that I don't really want to help it. So here we go. We live in a binary world. There is no third way. Black and white, up or down, left or right, north, south, east, west, wet or dry, tall or short, hard or soft, hot and cold, thin or fat, Right and wrong, boy and girl, man and woman, righteous, wicked, godly, ungodly, broad paths and narrow gates, heaven or hell, Christ and Satan. And I could go on. God wrote a binary system into the very fabric of the universe he created. It's his idea, not some social construct as many in the world would have us believe. Church, you do a good job of this. But keep standing for truth in all areas of life, especially in this point. This is one of the points that is most under attack in our culture today. Let us continue to be bold, proud, and unashamed of the world that God made. All right, on to verse 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners nor sit in the seat of scoffers. The Hebrew word here for blessed is asher. I think that's pretty close pronunciation, actually. In the original text, it occurs 45 times, and the King James Version translates it blessed 27, and um, 18 times it renders it happy. Um, Just as it's used here in the LSB, it's most often an interjection. Right, like emotion. Uh, for example, how happy, or as the LSB renders it, how blessed is that man? Uh, a few examples of its use elsewhere, this same word. In Job 5 7, uh, it says, Behold, how blessed is the man whom God reproves. <clears throat> In the next Psalm, Psalm 2, verse 12, it says, Kiss the son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. In Psalm 32, verse 1, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Amen. Hashtag blessed, right? It means to be supremely happy or blessed. Supremely happy or blessed. Additionally, here in verse 1, it's actually a plural word. uh, And that gives it the meaning of like an intensification of the blessedness. Or maybe it has in view the idea of like the manifold blessings of God. It's probably both. An intensification of the manifold blessings of God. 
Interestingly, while blessed is a plural word, the word for man, aish in the Hebrew is singular. And the Young's literal translation actually is really helpful here. It exclaims, oh, the happiness of that one. Oh, the happiness of that one. And the footnote in the ESV study Bible states, a specific godly individual is held up as an example for others to imitate. Uh, This type of teaching is very common throughout the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. And uh, primarily in Proverbs is what comes to mind for me. What follows this is a description of what the specific godly man does not do. He does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Here I believe we are meant to see sin as a progressive force. (laughs) Excuse me. The ungodly, unlike the righteous, go from walking to standing, to sitting, each additional step signifying a further descent into sin. And likewise, we see counsel of the wicked, way of sinners, and seat of scoffers. (coughs) I'm not going to stop. It's just going to be longer, okay? So (laughs) buckle up. We're going to get through it. Uh, When one is, um, sorry, the counsel of the wicked, the way of sinners, and the seat of scoffers, each shows a further step into wickedness. When one is walking in the counsel of the wicked, it means that they are listening to their counsel and advice, borrowing their principles, and sharing goals and aims with the ungodly. Then they progress to standing in the way of sinners. All right, they've moved into the realm beyond simply thinking the same thoughts and sharing the same goals as the unrighteous or the world, if you will, into joining them fully in their way of life. They've moved from principle to practice. Continuing in that way, they eventually find themselves in the seat of scoffers. The facade of godliness is fully gone. They are no longer content simply with joining the wicked. Now they must ridicule those who still refuse to join them. The ungodly man has joined the wicked and has become fully like him. Romans chapter 1 verse 32 says, Although they know the righteous requirement of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Proverbs chapter 4 gives strong warnings against joining the wicked in their paths. I think this, uh, I didn't write it, but I think this is verse 14 is where it starts. Do not enter the path of of wicked men and do not step into the way of evil men. Avoid it. Do, Do not pass by it. Stray from it and pass on. For they do not sleep unless they do evil. And they are robbed of sleep unless they make someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that shines brighter and brighter until the fullness of day. The way of the wicked is like thick darkness 
they do not know over what they stumble. Instinctively, we know this, don't we? We know that the way of sin is downhill, that the bad grow worse, that sinners become tempters. It It doesn't work the other way. Allow me to illustrate. Christians in the U.S., just a few short years ago, universally agreed that sodomy was wickedness. However, they began to listen to secular psychologists and homosexual activists regarding the rightness, the rightness and beauty of sodomy. By way of empathy, they climbed down into the quicksand with the wicked and no longer on solid ground themselves weren't able to lift them out of the mire. They walked in the counsel of the wicked. Naturally, the next step was to join them. And it was claimed that one could be a practicing sodomite and a Christian at the same time. Christians began to stand in the way of sinners. And now these so-called Christians have become fully like their teachers, ridiculing and scoffing at anyone who still boldly holds a biblical view on this matter. They are now sitting in the seat of scoffers. Uh, And it's to the point where they they claim they can't even tell the difference between a boy and a girl. But we know that God made a binary world. There's two options. Luke 6.40. A student is not above his teacher, but everyone, after he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. Right? The wicked were the teachers. The result? Now much of the visible church is so in league with the unrighteous in regard to this topic, that they are completely indistinguishable from the world. Theologian William Plumer, he who persistently walks and stands and sits with the ungodly shall lie down with them in hopeless sorrow. Luther chimes in, here is an original drop of venom swollen to a main ocean of poison as one drop of some serpent's poison lighting on the hand gets into the veins and so spreads itself over all the body till it hath stifled the vital spirits. The blessed man is the man that does not do these things. Verse 2 says, but he's not like this, right? He's not like this. But his delight is in the law of Yahweh, and in his law he meditates day and night. Uh, the word for delight here is chafetz, helpfully. It means the exact same thing in Hebrew as it does in English. It occurs 39 times in the Old Testament, and the King James Version translate it, translates it either pleasure, desire, or delight 31 out of the 39 times. this language is very reminiscent of the language used, for example, in Psalm 119. Verse 11 reads, Your word I have treasured in my heart, that I may not sin against you. Verse 16, I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. And verse 24 says, Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. 
A theologian named Alexander McLaren puts it well. It's a great quote. The true way of floating rubbish out is to pour water in. Delight in the law will deliver from delight in the counsel of the wicked. As the negative, so the positive begins with the inward man. The main thing about all men is the direction of their delight. Where do tastes run? What pleases them most and where are they most at ease? Deeds will follow the current of desires. So the godly man, um, he doesn't just delight himself in the law of the Lord. He proves it uh, by meditating on it day and night. Uh, The word translated here as meditate literally means to murmur, to ponder, imagine, mutter, etc. It has a few other things. So the biblical idea of meditation is vastly different from the Eastern idea of meditation in which the goal is to make the mind as empty as possible. The psalmist, by contrast, says to fill your mind with the law of God. Furthermore, delight yourself in it. Love it. Desire it. Um, Romans 12.2 says, Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Transformation begins in the mind. Don't empty it. Fill it. The Reverend Father Jeremy Bergman (laughs) and plain old ordinary church member Josh Jones (laughs) have worked very hard on the CTK app and the Bible reading plan that it contains. I love it. It's wonderful. It's a great place to start, but it's a terrible place to stop. If we begin each day reading through uh, that day's text, and then we get up and we go about our day not meditating, not murmuring, not pondering, not muttering the word of God to ourselves, how much benefit is that really to us? The elder bishop, Chris Jones himself, (laughs) gave a beer and psalms talk to the men last year about memorizing scripture. In that talk, he said that one of the most masculine things, he may have said the most masculine thing, but one of the most masculine things that we as men can do is to memorize Scripture. And then uh, fast forward to the backpacking trip that quite a few of the men were able to go on um, earlier this month. And around the campfire that night, four men, Avery, Isaac, Chad Blowers, and David Gray, recited the book of Colossians from memory. Each man took a chapter and combined to recite the whole book from memory. Memorize it so that you can mutter it to yourself. You know another good way to facilitate meditation? Learn and sing psalms. Learn and sing psalms. Psalm 119.97 reads, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Uh, regarding meditation, Spurgeon says, takes a text and carries it with him all day long. 
And in the night watches, when sleep forsakes his eyelids, he museth upon the word of God. In the day of his prosperity, he sings psalms out of the word of God. And in the night of his affliction, he comforts himself with promises out of the same book. Amen. Matthew Henry on the same topic. To meditate in God's word is to discourse with ourselves concerning the great things contained in it. With a close application of mind, a fixedness of thought, till we be suitably affected with those things and experience the savor and power of them in our hearts. This we must do day and night. We must have a constant habitual regard to the word of God as the rule of our actions and the spring of our comforts. And we must have it in our thoughts accordingly upon every occasion that occurs, whether night or day. No time is amiss for meditating on the word of God, nor is any time unseasonable for those visits. We must not only set ourselves to meditate on God's word morning and evening, at the entrance of the day and of the night, but these thoughts should be interwoven with the business and commerce of every day and with the repose and slumber of every night. Uh, and Thomas Watson, somewhat more quaintly, puts it, Meditation chews the cud and gets the sweetness and nutritive virtue of the word into the heart and life. This is the way the godly bring forth much fruit. Uh, speaking of fruit, on to verse 3. And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. First thing I want to point out here is that we aren't talking about a wild tree. The psalmist very clearly states that the tree is planted intentionally beside streams of water. Furthermore, the Hebrew for streams most closely signifies not like a, a river, but small rivers of water, as in irrigation. This indicates to us even more intentionality. It is intentionaler, if you will. <laughs> also, the Legacy Standard Bible um, here adds the word firmly in italics, um, and when they add a word in italics, it means that it's not in the original language, but the text strongly implies it. So they translate it that way so we can get, um, get, a, get an idea what is meant. Um, the tree is here with purpose. It is no accident. It's no wild scrub tree. It's been firmly planted and irrigated. It is not a wild tree, but a, but a tree planted, chosen, considered as property, cultivated, and secured from the last terrible uprooting. For as Matthew 15, 13 puts it, every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. Furthermore, the tree is planted with a view toward bearing fruit. This tree bears its fruit in its season. It does this because its roots are able to draw the water and nutrients it needs from the soil. The soil is good, the water is plentiful, 
The planter is caring for it. In turn, the tree is good and able to bear good fruit. You might ask, well, um, as, as I did when um, considering this text, how important is it to bear good fruit? Let's take a look. Matthew 3, 8 through 10 says, Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, <clears throat> We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. And the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Matthew seven eighteen and 19 reads, A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. <clears throat> Paul in Romans chapter 7 writes, To him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. And in Ephesians he tells us that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Here, Fruit-bearing, created in Christ Jesus to bear fruit, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And I think you'll uh, um, remember that Jesus himself cursed a fig tree, which didn't yield the fruit he expected to find on it. Friends, God is concerned with what type of fruit we bear. Therefore, it is indeed very important. And not only does that tree bear good fruit, but its delicate leaves also do not wither. A helpful companion text is Jeremiah 17, 7 and 8. It said, Blessed is the man who trusts in Yahweh and whose trust is Yahweh. And he will be like a tree planted by the water that sends forth its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in a year of drought nor refrain from yielding fruit. In the heat and in the drought, its leaves are green and healthy. And in whatever he does, he prospers. The Young's literal is helpful here again. And all that he doth, he causeth to prosper. Yahweh is causing this man's endeavors to prosper. Literally, it reads, to make prosper. This idea is well demonstrated in Joshua 1, 7 and 8. Only be strong and very courageous to be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn aside from it to the right or to the left, <clears throat> so that you may be prosperous wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way successful, and then you will become prosperous. The idea here isn't simply temporal blessing, 
but it's also not referring um, just to eternal blessing. It very clearly means both. In all he does, he prospers. 1 Timothy 4.8 states, Godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise, what? For the present life and also for the life to come. Obedience produces blessing, manifold blessing. Fruitfulness both in this life and in the life to come. I really love how Matthew Henry puts it. Uh, He says, when the psalmist undertakes to describe a blessed man, he describes a good man. For after all, those only are happy, truly happy, that are holy, truly holy. Goodness and holiness are not only the way to happiness, but happiness itself. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff which the wind drives away. Um, in the Hebrew, it is rendered much more forcefully, actually. Um, a, a very direct translation would be, not so the wicked. Uh, that's how the verse would begin in the original language. Uh, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, translates it as follows. Not so the ungodly. They are not so. To which Spurgeon colorfully remarks. Oh, how terrible is it to have a double negative put upon the promises. The point here could not be clearer. The wicked are not like the righteous. What are they like then? Well, they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Most of you probably know this. But chaff is the outer and edible part of the grain. And after the grain is harvested, it has to be threshed. The most common method in ancient Palestine involved driving oxen over the grain as it lay on the threshing floor. So that their hooves would separate the grain from the stalks. And then the grain, because it's heavy, would drop to the bottom and be protected um, from further damage. Then the mixture would be scooped up and thrown into the air at a windy spot, um, against the wind often. And because the chaff was lighter than the grain, it would be blown away by the wind, while the heavy and valuable grain would fall safely back to the ground. Spurgeon describes the virtues of chaff, intrinsically worthless, dead, unserviceable, without substance, and easily carried away. Y'all, being compared to chaff, not a good thing. We're talking about a culture which would obviously, if it were useful, had any value, would have used it. They wouldn't simply allow something valuable or useful to blow away in the wind. If you've ever had steel-cut oats for breakfast, you know that sometimes you'll find in your porridge a small hunk of what feels like a shell that doesn't belong but didn't get fully separated. Sometimes it even gets stuck in your teeth. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay, good. Becca told me that nobody's going to get this analogy. You should absolutely do popcorn, but popcorn is nasty, so we're not going to talk about it today. (laughs) 
What is the only appropriate thing to do when you find one of these little nuggets in your ball of oats? What do you do? Spit it out. Yeah, that's exactly right. Nobody eats that stuff. Well, Avery might. I don't know. <laughs> who, who knows what that guy... Uh, that's what the psalmist is comparing the wicked to. He doesn't say that the righteous is like a tree planted and the wicked is like a wild tree, which would at least have life in it. No, he says that the righteous is like a tree planted, cultivated, cared for. And the wicked is like that stuff that if you accidentally get it in your mouth, all you want to do is spit it back out. Not so the wicked. I won't spend time on it this morning because I think it would be laboring the point. <clears throat> but if you're inclined, do a search on the word chaff in your Bible sometime. There's not a single instance in which chaff is spoken of positively. And most of the time is nearly a universal synonym for the judgment of God. Therefore, the wicked will not rise in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The sense here is that of a courtroom and a defendant being called upon to testify in their own defense. Now, notwithstanding the fact that it would be impossible for them to rise in the presence of the Holy One, what would be the point? He knows their works. Most people think that they're basically good. Most people here, anyway. I think uh, probably the guys who just got back from the trip would testify that um, maybe some Muslims they spoke to w wouldn't say that they're basically good. But here in the, in the U.S. and especially in the South, everybody's basically good. <clears throat> you might even hear them declare that the good they've done in their lives will outweigh the bad. And on the day of judgment, they'll be permitted into paradise because of this. There's the idea that in the presence of the Lamb of God, they'll rise and take the stand in their own defense and come out victorious as the gavel sounds to announce their eternal reward. This is not the reality that we find in the Bible. The wicked will not rise in the judgment. For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like fil a filthy garment. And all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind carry us away. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, in your name did we not prophesy, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name do many miracles? <clears throat> then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the biblical reality. Henry again, the wicked and profane in this world ridiculed the righteous in their congregation, despised them and cared not for their company. Justly, therefore, will they be forever separated from them. Hypocrites in this world, under the disguise of a plausible profession, may thrust themselves into the congregation of the righteous and remain undisturbed and undiscovered there. 
but Christ cannot be imposed upon, though his ministers may. The day is coming when he will separate between the sheep and the goats, the tares and the wheat. That great day will be a day of discovery, a day of distinction, and a day of final division. Then you shall return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, which here it is sometimes hard to do. <coughs> Excuse me, guys. Thanks for bearing with me. Verse 6 begins, For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, <clears throat> but the way of the wicked will perish. A literal reading from the Hebrew might render it, the Lord is knowing the way of the righteous. And it carries with it the full biblical sense of the word know. Namely, observation, care, recognition, causality, instruction, loving knowledge, approval. What's intended here is a sense of protection and preservation. Uh, in fact, I don't recommend this translation, but the New Living Translation renders it pretty well. For the Lord watches over the path of the godly. Not, not just knows, but watches over. <clears throat> Hear Paul write of the preserving power of our Lord. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul again in 2 Timothy, I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. And Jude one twenty four reads, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. And our Lord himself in John chapter 6 says, Now this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. This is how the Lord preserves and protects the way of the righteous. Praise God. He doesn't preserve or protect the way of the wicked man. And as a result, that man will perish. <clears throat> Rather, the fate of the wicked man is described in Matthew 3.12. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly, thoroughly clear his threshing floor. And he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The binary reality of God's world is again inescapable. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is narrow and the way is constricted that leads to life. And there are few who find it. The great Spurgeon once more. <clears throat> Not only shall they perish themselves, but their way shall perish too. 
The righteous carves his name upon the rock, but the wicked writes his remembrance in the sand. The righteous man plows the furrows of earth and sows a harvest here, which shall never be fully reaped till he enters the enjoyments of eternity. But as for the wicked, he plows the sea. And though there may seem to be a shining trail behind his keel, yet the waves shall pass over it, and the place that knew him shall know him no more forever. The very way of the ungodly shall perish. How are we doing, guys? Everybody feel like they're keeping up their end of the bargain on this? You might say, no, I'm not listening to the world's wisdom. I'm not joining sinners in their walk. I'm certainly not sitting alongside the scoffers. And furthermore, I'm perfectly delighting myself in the law of God. And it's my constant thought, both day and night. No, no, it's not. Even Paul describes this reality in Romans chapter 7. And I think it's a reality. I know certainly um, I can relate to it. I think we all can. I do not understand. For I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing that I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. For the willing is present in me, but the working out of the good is not. For the good that I want I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. I find then the principle that in me evil is present, in me who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in my members waging war against the law of my mind and making me a captive to the law of sin, which is in my members." Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. If we are unable to do the good that we ought to do, then how do we receive the blessing? What about the fruit? Where does that come from? Sir Richard Baker instructs, I have been induced to embrace the opinion of some among the ancient interpreters, and I could say I have as well, who conceive that the first psalm is intended to be descriptive of the character and reward of the just one, the Lord Jesus. Amen and amen. That means that our reward and fruitfulness come because of his perfect obedience his refusal to walk in the counsel of the wicked or to stand in the way of sinners, his refusal to sit in the scoffer's chair, his perfect love for and meditation upon the law of God. He is the one planted by streams of water, yielding fruit in season with a leaf that does not wither. Everything he does will prosper. Listen to Isaiah speaking of Jesus. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, 
and a branch from his roots will bear much fruit. The spirit of Yahweh will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. And he will delight in the fear of Yahweh. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he will put the wicked to death. Also, righteousness will be the belt about his loins. And faithfulness, the belt about his waist. They will do no evil, nor act corruptly, corruptly in all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. Did you guys catch that? Jesus is the shoot from the stem of Jesse, and he will bear much fruit. And he will delight in the fear of Yahweh. And he will put the wicked to death. And he is the one who wears righteousness as a belt about his waist. Our fruit bearing is vicarious. John 15, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine grower. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit from itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, <clears throat> I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for that singular godly man who secured righteousness on our behalf. Um, you made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Father, the, whether, whether we... Um, know the Lord Jesus in this moment or not, the answer is the same. Uh, we are to either repent and trust that firmly planted tree who is Christ to be attached to the vine. God, we need to be grafted into the vine or we won't bear much fruit. Or as believers, God, the, the answer is repentance and abiding. I pray that you would grant repentance in this room where we don't um, abide in the Lord Jesus Christ, where we think that we can bear fruit on our own. Please help us, God, um, to make your, your law our delight. Uh, do the thing in us 
that we can't do for ourselves. Unite us to Christ. Help us to abide fully in him that we may bear much fruit because it brings you glory. We thank you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.